I got this home group and this church and this group of friends. But eight years ago, I was married to, oh, what's her name? And I was working for this other company and all of that stuff. And then before that, I was living in San Diego. And then before that, I was in the Air Force. And I was stationed at. And then before that, I was stationed at. And before that, I was in college. And then before that, I was in high school. And and you go chronologically back through your life, analyzing it. And looking for anything or anyone you have ever been angry with. There will probably be a major political party. Maybe more than one. Major, major political figures. Um, a church. Maybe more than one. Foreign countries. National figures. Uh, exes. Just list all your family members. Don't worry about it. Just put them down. Um, <laughs> right? Y'all interrupt trying to make a mistake on this. And, um, and just, you just keep them coming. And when we get to your earliest memories, and you can't think of any more, your childhood, we're finished. Now, at this point, we're not, we're not complete, but we are finished. At that point, I want you to start carrying a pencil and piece of paper with you all the time. Because you're going to be walking through the grocery store. You're going to see the candle. Say, that sucker's head looks Just write it down. <laughs> we'll add it to the list. And... Uh, when they get to that point, then we go to direction two, which is still on page 64. It says, we asked ourselves why we are angry. Let's have a look at the facing page, the example. I'm resentful at Mr. Brown, the cause. His, his attention to my wife told my wife or my mistress, Brown may get my job at the office. If you would, begin with the word office and count backwards on those words under the cause. See how many that is. Somebody? 19 words. 19 words. This guy is messing with his wife. <laughs> has told his wife about his girlfriend. And is trying to get him fired and take his job. He got 19 words. <laughs> All right? 19 words. And if you have done this list, like I've suggested, you have a name. And under two, you have the space all the way over to the spiral. And the line below it. And you can get 19 words or less, and there is a summary. It's a summary. And it doesn't say, oh, it was a cold, rainy Wednesday afternoon. All right. <laughs> nah, we're not starting there. Mm-mm. That's why you can't have five pages for your father. Because all you'll do is feed the resentment. We're not here to feed it. We're here to dig it out. Step four is about digging poison out of your soul. That is exactly what step four is about. Literally. Exactly. Digging poison out of your soul. That's what this portion of this inventory is about. Not yet, but that's what we're coming to. And if you work across the page, you'll t- there are two reasons to, to do it vertically. The first one, and the most important, is the book said list, and they run down the page. The second one is if you work across the page, you'll tend to feed the resentments. Working vertically down the page, do column one, then column two, it's much more analytical. You won't fire them up near as high. I see a lot of people nodding. Okay, that's great. So we do that, and then... Uh, column three, top of page 65, on our grudge list, opposite each name, we, uh, our injuries, was it our self-esteem, security, ambitions, personal or sex relations, which has been interfered with, five-part multiple choice test. Five-part multiple choice. Column three. Write them down. It's that simple. For me, I think the most powerful directions in this book, I've seen more lives change here, are the ones that lie between columns three and column four. It is the directions that do not call for writing. The observations and prayers that are absolutely life-changing. And um, we're going to cover those in the next session. We're going to take a 10-minute and 15-second break right now. We're going to start back at 11 o'clock sharp. Bob Darrow and I am alcoholic. The room's thinning out. That must be we must be on step four almost. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I started doing these step workshops uh, back in the mid mid early '80s, and I started them uh, because all of a sudden I had too many guys to sponsor to individually take through the steps. We started doing it as a group. And uh, for, 
for years, we would start out with 20 or 30 people, and by the time we get to step four, we'd be half. And then we'd lose a few more. We'd lose some at nine, too. We'd all... And I'd, we'd do the same thing. I'd be still going on, only we get 80 people to 100 people. And by the time when we get to step four, we might lose 10, maybe. Uh, and they go through the whole thing. Um, and it's, it's a nice feeling. Uh, a couple things, segues, before I get into the thing that uh, where Scott left off on step four. This, this thing about the first, first of all, we had to quit playing God. You know, I, this is really what we're going to look at is how do I play God? And we're going to look at that in step four. I didn't know that I played God. I used to go to my sponsor in early sobriety and I would make these little mental lists of how out of line people were. You know, like the people at work that are, aren't coming on time and they're stealing and they're not working as hard as everybody else. And then I had long lists of people in AA. You know, you know, she's just here looking for a husband and he's a 13-stepper and he doesn't put any money in the basket. My God, he's selling Amway in the parking lot. You know, and, and, and the, the, he lies in meetings and she sounds like a Hallmark card in a recovery bookstore and that guy's full of crap. and You know, on and on. And I go to my sponsor and I tell him he's a mentalist and he always says, the same thing to me. He says, you've got to quit playing God. And I think, I'm not playing God. I'm reporting accurate information here. I'm not <laughs> playing God. And I was playing God. I climbed up on the throne of judgment in a state of separation, just like all the examples that Bill uses. The retired businessman lolling in the Florida sunshine, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister sighing over the sins. I'm creating the separation based on my ego, based on self. The separation, the ism is I separate myself, and it starts with my judgment. And what, what am I really trying to do here? Uh, when, I, uh, when I'm asking God in this third step, what am I really uh, trying to do? I'm trying to get out of management. I'm trying to get out of the driver's seat. Um, and what am I turning over, really? You know, it says, made a decision to turn our will, and it says will first, and then our lives over to the care of God. I didn't know what will was. And I, I went to it in the early, about 1980 or so, I went to a Joe and Charlie seminar, and, and Charlie says, your will is your thinking. Well, that's not, that's close, but it's not all my thinking because I can drive down the street and, uh, and see, a, see somebody I know and say, oh, that's Bill, and just keep driving. And it's a cognizant thought. I recognize Bill. It's the thinking edged with self and the thinking involving judgment. right? And how do I play God? What is my... I was at a, an attorney years ago and I was making a will because I started to own some properties and different things around Las Vegas, and I knew I needed to have an estate or will for my, my daughter. And uh, this attorney says to me, he says, you know, when you're making your last will, he said, really, what you're doing is you're making your last judgment. Your will is your judgment. It's the judgment. You judge these people to be idiots. They don't get anything. You judge these people to be cool. They get something. You reach out from the grave. It is your last judgment on your fellow man. And when, I, when he said that to me, all of a sudden, a lot of the things made started to make sense to me. The reason why in my first several years of sobriety, I would be constantly trying to turn my, I would think, my will and my life. But I'm really, what I'm doing is I'm turning my life over to the care of God. And without realizing it, I'm retaining my opinion and my judgment. And if you do that, it's like, here, God, here's my life. And there's a list coming of how it better go. Because you know what, the, and then I get depressed. Because you know what depression is. That's when God stops doing your will. Right? You know, there's an old, it's an old biblical story. I, it's funny how having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I was able to 
revisit some of the things I was adamantly opposed to in my childhood and see them from a different light. Maybe often a light differently than they intended me to see them in Catholic school, but a light that makes sense to me in the light of my own spiritual awakening. And the biblical story of Adam and Eve, I, I see today in a different light. Now, here's, here's Adam and Eve who have been given heaven on earth, been given paradise, the Garden of Eden. It is, it is perfect. And it, everything is perfect. And they're given one suggestion. We suggest you don't eat the fruit from this one particular tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know if this was the intent of the biblical writers, but it's I picture they couldn't reason. First of all, they said thou shalt not, which made the made the just put a neon sign on that tree. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I didn't even I'm that kind of guy. I don't even want to do something until you tell me I can't. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just I can't make it past the do not touch wet paint sign without going like that. I just something about me. And this this. Fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. I think they were in heaven and they ate that fruit and they got the knowledge of good and evil. They got the judgment. And all of a sudden they lost paradise. Because all of a sudden what had been paradise, Adam's going, God, there's crabgrass. What the hell were you thinking? Eve's got cellulite. God, what are you, what's going on here? There's flies. This is crap. What is it? And what had, was heaven became hell. And what changed? Nothing. Except that they got their judgment. And one of my great mentors was a guy named Chuck Chamberlain. And Chuck, Chuck helped me a lot. And Chuck used to tell a story about sitting in this chair in his house, married to this woman, working in this plant. And he said he'd sit in that chair and feel like he was dying, feeling like he was in hell. And then many years later, he found himself sitting in the chair, after getting sober, working these steps, finding himself sitting in the same chair, married to the same woman, with the same kids, working at the same place. And he felt like he was heaven. And he said, maybe heaven's just a new pair of glasses. Maybe I put myself in hell. And I know what it's like to be in hell. I know what it's like to be in that state of separation, separate from you, separate from God, alone unto myself, in my own discontent. Playing God. And I, uh, I'll give you a novel thought that has been true for me. I have never had a situation in my life ever that's been a problem. But I've had some judgments that were problems. It is my judgment of my life. I, I stop being the old Chinese farmer and I become the I know guy. And the I know guy has opinions of everything. And that's where the conflict ensues. As I start to argue with life. And people who argue with the truth get sick. And I got sick. Uh, I was very sick. So we're looking for the things in us which had been blocking us. And it talks in the top of page 64. It says, though our decision in step three was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by an effort, by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in us which had been blocking us. The things which had been blocking us. That's why without step four, you can't turn your will and your life over the care of God. Without four through nine, you're blocked. You can't do it. You cannot do it. And you must do it. You must be free of this selfishness. You must or it kills you. And yet you can't be free of it. I can't. And that's why in my early sobriety, I suffered from alcoholism. Uh, because I, hadn't, I did a, a crappy version of the steps, you know, your life story, but I never did this. And as a result, I never dismantled my judgment machine. And I am spending my first four and a half years of sobriety continually trying to give God my life and running the show at the same time. And that is a hell unto itself. Right? That is a hell unto itself. And I would be the guy in the meeting, if the subject was step three, I'd say, I don't know what's wrong, but I keep turning it over and taking it back. Well, I never turned it over, really. I've still retained, I'm trying to give God my life, and I'm retaining my will, my judgment of how things should go. I'm still the great I am in my own life. I'm still the center. I still think I know how it should go. God, you didn't, God, what's wrong with you? You didn't cure this guy's cancer, and 
God, you, you didn't give me a better job. And God, you made it. And she left. God, why'd you leave? You know, on and on and on and on and on. I got these judgments that are keeping me in hell. When really everything was in divine order. And I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. And step in the 12 by 12. There's a passage that was pointed out to me when I was four and a half years, a little over four years sober. I was a little over four years sober. I'm going to 10 or 12 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a week. I'm sponsoring guys. I'm very active. I'm, uh, I'm a DCM. I'm a chairman of a conference. I'm very active in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am dying of untreated alcoholism in the rooms of AA because I'd never really cleaned house. I did my life story, but I never dismantled the judgment machine, and I was dying here. And there's a description of, of, of this illness, of spiritual illness that happens to us as a result of not cleaning house in the 12 by 12. And this a guy read this, pointed this out to me, and I read it, and it was me, exactly. And it comes from page 56 in step 5, and it's about the fourth line down in the first paragraph where it starts with some people, if you have a 12 by 12. If you don't, I'm going to read it. 12 by 12, yeah. It says, some people are unable to stay sober at all. Others will relapse periodically until they really clean house. Even AA old-timers, and this is the part that hooked me because I figured four years or so, I'm an old-timer, right? <laughs> Even AA old-timers, sober for years, often pay dearly for skimping this step. And here's how we pay. They will tell how they tried to carry the load alone. And at that point in my sobriety, everything was very serious. Everything was very heavy. Everything was a big deal. People at one of the AA clubs in town, some guy accused me of having my sense of humor surgically removed. I mean, <laughs> you know. I'm the guy who's sitting in the meetings. I have no sense of humor. I'm sh I share at people. In the meetings, right? To straighten them out, right? I share, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sight, I'm the vision for you, I'll tell you. <laughs> and you loved me. How they carried, tried to carry the load alone. How much they suffered of irritability. I'm not irritable, but I am painfully aware of what's wrong with everybody. <laughs> How they suffered of anxiety. I would spin in my head. I, I just, I, it's crazy. I just worry about it. I wake up afraid. I wake up anxious and apprehensive and roll over it as if, I love what Dr. Silkworth says. He says, to us, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Like as if it is normal to be neurotic and worry all the time and be full of apprehension and anxiety. I'm that guy. I'm suffering from anxiety. It says we suffer from remorse because when you're irritable and occasionally you go off on somebody and then I feel like crap later. Whether it's a waitress in a restaurant that hasn't waited on me quickly enough because she doesn't know who I am and then I go off on her and I read her the riot act and storm out of there and I'm never going to eat here again. And then I go sit in my car and feel like I want to go out in the garden and eat worms because I feel ashamed of myself because I've just acted like someone who I wouldn't like. Right? I've become the guy. And remorse is when I become the guy I wouldn't like. Right? So I suffer from remorse and depression. I have always been the type of alcoholic that has suffered with untreated alcoholism, one of my primary, my two primary symptoms are anxiety and depression and loneliness and loneliness. And I'm convinced if I could find her, I'll fix all that. And it never works out because I'm coming from a place of need and a place of vacancy. Relationships are for adults. They're not for crippled children, emotionally crippled children. And so I'm suffering from depression. And I, it's, not the, it's not clinical depression, even though I know that depression, I had been diagnosed as clinically depressed by a very competent psychiatrist. And it looks like clinical depression. 
But it's really not. It's spiritual depression. It's the depression of the obsessively, overly self-involved. My spirit gets depressed because I smother myself with myself. I just get me right here and my emotions and my life and my anxieties and my fears until I'm just totally alone, consumed in myself, and I sink into the abyss. And I started having bouts of that again. That's a hideous thing. A hideous thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't real clinical depression. It was untreated alcoholism. I was not relieved of the bondage of self. I had not dismantled my judgment machine. I was locked in the conflicted position between me and God's universe. As it says on the, in the big book, I'm looking for the things in me which had been blocking me. Not only blocking me from carrying out the decision I made in step three until I dismantle my judgment machine, I can't turn my will. I can't give my will up. I'm not giving my will up. I'm retaining my will. And to see in this thing the exact nature of my wrongs, how wrong I had been about everybody, how wrong I had been about my parents, how in my self-centered perception and judgment of them, how wrong I had been about the women in my life and the employers and the police and society, and how wrong I had been in my judgments and my fears. The things I was so, every fear I had was a judgment. It was a, I, this is going to be awful and terrible. I've got to protect myself from that. Somewhere I make those judgments. And then I, sometimes I make them come true. So how wrong. I'm looking for the things that blocked me from carrying out the decision of step three and also blocked me from the, the great reality deep down within me. The book said I was blocked from God within me. I was obscured by pomp, by calamity, by worship of other things. My need to be right. I was so full of myself. I, I was blocked. I, was, I couldn't find God. And I'm also blocked from you. Alcoholics of my type with untreated alcoholism as my spirit gets sick. I live in a state of separation from the people around me. That peculiar, sick, secret loneliness of being in a room full of people who I intellectually know care about me. And yet I'm the one guy here that doesn't belong. And I don't know why. A state of anxious apartness that as Bill talks about it in the 12 by 12. That feeling that it's all of you and then there's me. And it's an exquisite type of loneliness. And the only thing, the danger of that is, the only thing that ever freed me from that instantaneously when I can't stand it anymore has been five shots of Jack Daniels. And I could come out and play. And the danger for me is that if I stay in that state of separation, blocked and separate and depressed and anxious and all the stuff that is part of my untreated alcoholism long enough, I will start to yearn for freedom. And I will start to hunger to bust out. And the only thing that can bust me out when my emotions and my spiritual malady is putting the screws to me is to take something, take a drink, and hope, hope against hope, that maybe this time it'll work like it did when I was 20 years old, even though it hadn't the whole three or four last years I drank. And the insanity of alcohol returns and I drink again. And I don't drink because I crave alcohol. I drink because I crave freedom. I crave freedom. Freedom from the bondage of self. Something I can't get because I haven't dismantled the things in step four and five, six and seven, that keep me locked into and a hostage of my own self-involvement. I'm a prisoner of me. Everywhere I go, the minute I get there, it's all, what does it have to do with me? I am a prisoner, hostage to my own self and shackled to my own self-concern, my own self-involvement, my own self-obsession. So Scott was started to, to set up the beginning, the first half of the resentment process. And it's kind of like in two halves. The first half, the first three columns, we're kind of, this is the easy part. We're taking the part of the prosecuting attorney. We've got our lists. And, you know, there we got them. And they've been there for years. And, and I really love what Scott said about keep it sh short and to the point. To the point. Because I have, I have case files built on people, you know. I've, well, what was wrong with your second grade teacher? 
do you got an hour? You know, I could. And really, what was the real resentment was not the fact that she hurt my friend. She she punished my friend Welly and my friend Tommy, and she was uptight woman, and the vow of chastity had gone to her brain, and none of that stuff was. That was all peripheral reasons to hate her. What really happened is that she got me up in front of the class one day and embarrassed me for not doing my homework, and I felt public humiliation. There's nothing worse than that. And from that moment on, I looked at her with that perception that only a, a judgmental alcoholic can have, and I just looked for anything to keep my case alive because I couldn't, I couldn't justify within myself hating her as much as I did for what she did, so I had to build the case. But the real truth was that she embarrassed me in front of the class. That was the truth. And because of that, I, I looked for every little thing she might have done wrong and just built, kept my case alive. So now, to get free of this, on page 66, it, it, it gives us seven death threats. This is the strongest death threat page on the, in the book. And, it's, and they're not being dramatic. When it says in that one line that these things that this resentment will cut us off from the sunlight of the spirit and the insanity of alcohol will return and we will drink again and with us to drink is to die. That is a, that is a, a accurate demonstration of relapse. I get shut off, locked up inside myself and I need freedom. I gotta, I can't, I'm locked up in here and I got to bust out. And if you've ever been sober with a deep seated resentment, you're completely cut off from God and, and your fellow man. If you, especially if you have a resentment towards someone in AA. Oh, you can't hear. And if they're in the meeting, you can't hear nothing in that meeting because you're thinking at them the whole time. And if you share, it's nothing of any consequence. You're sharing at them. You're trying to straighten them out. You're trying to little, throw little innuendos in there to let them know how out of line they are and how wrong they've been. I mean, you can't. God could be trying to talk to you through the people in the meeting. You don't even hear it. You can't pray when you're like that. I mean, you can, you can go through the motions. You can get down on your knees and say, God, please help me to stay sober, and I really wish that son of a bitch would die. You know, it just it bleeds into everything. It owns you. It owns you. So it says, it's in the bottom of page 66, it says, We turn back to our list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared... And this is very important. Am I prepared to look at these from an entirely different angle? Everything rests right on that, how I answer that question. Can I pre am I prepared? If I still want to be right more than I want to be free, I ain't ready here yet. If I still insist that my case is valid and I don't want to give it up, if I, I want to rather be right than be at peace... If my ego, if my lack of self-esteem and I value myself so little that I would rather live in the pain and agitation and gratify my ego by being right about you, if I'm still locked in that position, then I am not prepared to look at this from an entirely different angle because I'm still emotionally vested in my judgment and I won't let it go. But if I am prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle, it says we will begin to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. Fancied or real. I'll tell you something. I found that most of my resentments in some form or other were fancied to some degree. There may be a kernel of truth in some of them, and then I will build a whole big case around that until it's more fancied than real. And when it says that these, these things fancied or real have the power to actually kill, I'm telling you, they're not kidding. I'll share a little story with you. Something that happened to me when, when I was fairly new. I used to go to, a, I, when I first got sober, I went to mostly nighttime meetings. And there was a guy, an old-timer in AA named Billy, and Billy... Billy uh, sober quite a few years and he was one of those guys that would reach out a lot to the new people and try to include us and bring us out to coffee after the meetings and, and in coffee shops I was really fed spoon fed a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous after meetings and before meetings and one night I'm with this guy Billy and it's just him and I in this coffee shop everybody else had left and we're sitting around and I found myself because he was easy to talk to 
telling Billy about those couple things that were my big secrets. The couple things that I was the most ashamed of. It says in the 12 by 12, the things I would have liked to have taken to my grave. And we all have those. I've never met an alcoholic yet that doesn't have something. And it might be different for every one of you. Maybe for some of you, it's you were drunk and you left your kids alone for hours and you just forgot about them. Or maybe you beat your kids in a moment of rage or, or drunkenness and you just the thought of it just makes you want to crawl under a rock. Or maybe you did some things to your mom and your dad. Or maybe you stole some money and let somebody else take the blame for it. Or maybe you lied about some people and it really hurt them. Or maybe you had some sex that, that when you think about it just makes you cringe. Maybe it was outside your species. I don't know. <laughs> but whatever. We all, have, we all have some stuff like that. And it's, it, doesn't make you, it doesn't make you anything except alcoholic to come here with that stuff. Don't make you a bad person. I've heard everything in fifth steps from murder to child abuse to everything you can think of. We all have that stuff. And I shared some of that stuff with Billy, that my big secrets, the to the grave stuff. And, and he seemed to take it well. You know, he, he said he didn't seem to reject me. And he said something that along the lines of, well, I'm sure you're not the only one that's done that. And maybe that will help someone someday or something along that line. And I remember vaguely in the back of my mind thinking, well, that sounds a little bit like the AA party line. But... He seemed to be okay with it and didn't reject me, so I kind of moved on. I went home that night, and I think it was within the next day or two, I had my shift changed at work. And all of a sudden, I'm working from 4 to midnight on the swing shift, and I, I don't go, my whole meeting pattern changed around. Now I'm going to a lot of noon meetings. And I didn't see Billy for months and months and months, good part of a year, I think. And one night, I went to, on my night off, I went to a night meeting that I normally would never go to. And the meeting's getting ready to start. And there's Billy across the room. And it was good to see him because he was such an integral part of my early sobriety. And I said, Billy, hey, Billy, how you doing? And Billy looked right through me. And he wouldn't say hi to me. And he looked at me and then averted his eyes. And he had this look on his face of contempt. A look as if he was saying, oh, get away from me. You know, you... <laughs> And I sat down in the meeting, and I, the meeting started, and I didn't hear nothing in the meeting. You know, I'm, I'm in my head. I'm grinding away. I'm hurt. Because I know what's going on here. I know. I, I know because I know Billy's judging me for that stuff I told him. And, and there, I guess, there's a part of me that can't blame him. God knows I've judged myself so harshly for that stuff. And I was secretly believed that if you really knew about me what I know about me, you would feel about me the way I feel about me. And the truth is, I don't feel too good about me. Now, I may cover that up with a lot of bravado, but the real truth, I ain't big on me. And so I, I, I knew that he was judging me for that stuff. He'd gone home and thought about it and realized, God, that Bob, oh, man, what a, what a, jeez. And I'm sitting there and I'm hurt. Now I'm starting to get angry because I always get angry when I'm hurt. And I get angry and I'm starting to build my case. And my case is well, that hypocritical SOB. You know, he told me all that stuff. You know, he's been judging me. That phony guy has been judging me. And then I got this epiphany experience. I thought, wait a minute. It's more than that. It's not that he's just judging me. The reason he can't look me in the eye, he, he oh, he's been telling everybody that stuff. <laughs> and it all, it's just, it, this the picture got so focused in my mind. There was a girl I'd just ask out, and she wouldn't go out with me, and she was a friend of his. Oh. There was another guy that he hangs out with, and now that I think about it, he was being a little distant. I'll kill him. I'm going to kill him. And I'm just sitting there, and I, I, bet, I imagine steam might have been coming out my ears. I'm just, I am just cooking, and I'm waiting for the end of the meeting. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to beat the crap out of him. And I'm going to feel justified doing that, because if he's done that to me, he's probably done it to other newcomers. I'm probably doing AA a service. They'll build a statue for me somewhere. This is a good deal. And I'm cocked and ready. I'm ready, man. I'm telling you, I'm hot. 
I am really hot. And, I'm, and the chairman of the meeting, closing the meeting, says, anybody have a burning desire to share? <laughs> and Billy raises his hand. He tells everybody in the room that the tumor they'd found recently, he found out that day was malignant and was terminal, and he had a very short time to live. And I sat there, and I felt this big. I sat there and realized that on the day he found out he was under a death sentence, that he was dying, that saying hi to Bob was not a big priority. That the day he found out he was dying, that he was probably so afraid in his head as I would have been, that he didn't even notice me or anybody else was there. He was so scared. And I realized that Billy had never judged me or did anything except try to help me. And it was like a postcard from God. Dear Bob, you don't know crap. Love God. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I, I, I often think back to that moment and I cringe. It would have come. I, I think my life held, hang, hung by a thread. If I would have gone up and beat the crap out of him and found out later that I did it and he never did nothing against me and I beat him up on the day he found out he was terminally ill, I would have never been able to come back here. I would have gone and drank myself to death. The shame and remorse would have been... I, I don't... The, there was a thing in my childhood that from in the Catholics, and I never understood it until recently, and I got sober. They used to talk about mortal sins. Sins that were so grave that you never came back from them without an, in, without an infusion of grace from God. And that I don't think there's anything I could ever do that would, God would turn, turn on me. He can't do anything except love me. But I think that there are things that I can do. I can damage my own spirit to the point where I will never be able to turn back to him. He will, be, he will wait patiently, hoping and maybe putting people in my life trying to turn me around. But I think I, can, I could render mortal blows to my own spirit that doesn't has nothing to do with God. It's all about me. So that these wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. And I, this was a great turning point for me because I thought to myself, and I remember this when I was finally doing it a little over four years sober, when I really did my first real inventory. If I could be that wrong about that, if my perception could be that off about that, could I be wrong about some of these other judgments I had about people? Was I really prepared to get off the throne of judgment? Was I prepared to quit playing God? Was I able to come down to earth and do what it says at the bottom of the page. After all the death threats in the whole book, on this whole page, it says the very last two sentences on the last paragraph, full paragraph, it says, we saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how we could not wish them away any more than alcohol. Well, it's spending the whole page telling me to get rid of this stuff, and then it says, oh, and by the way, you can't. What the hell did you tell me for? I am once again in a trap I can't spring. I have to have God's help. And this was our course. This is, a matter of fact, this is the course. This is it. This is where the freedom comes. This is where I get the change of perception, the change of consciousness. This is where I start to reduce the separation between me and those people I've judged so harshly. This is where I begin to dismantle the judgment machine. This was our course. We realized, which means I have to make this real. I have to, with inside myself, connect the dots. I've got to really get something here that I've never gotten before. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Well, I could get that. Yeah, they're sick and they're idiots too. I mean, I could get that. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, it goes on to expand upon it a little bit more. It says, though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, that they, this people I hate, like ourselves, like me, that they are like me. Sick too. What's that mean? 
That means I've got to realize something. I've got to get honest enough with myself, get off the high horse, come down to earth, and put myself in their shoes. I have to realize how if I was raised the way they were raised, if I was afraid the way they were afraid, if I were crazy the way they were, if I was stoned the way they were stoned, if I had all the combinations of history and emotions going on inside of me that were going on inside of them, I could easily have done to another human being exactly what they did to me. And I probably would have hated myself for doing it. But never, ever believe that I'm above that. If the things in my life that I haven't done have actually been by God's grace, not by my virtue, you get me scared enough, you get me backed into a corner enough, and no matter how high my moral judgments are in my character, I am capable of doing things as my history and past will show you that I can't stand myself for later. My whole life was a series of those events. And I... And I started to see that and, and put myself in their shoes and, and imagined what it might have, must have been like to be that person. And how, how would I have had to feel about myself to treat another human being the way they treated me? And I started for the first time in my life to have some compassion and understanding. A thing that in step 10 says that we are to grow in this understanding and effectiveness. And the understanding really begins right here when I make that realization. And some of those realizations I can't make on my own. And there's a prayer that said, we ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick, a sick friend. I had a guy a few years ago, well, 10 or so years ago, he had this really bad resentment towards somebody at work that he dealt with. And I told him to say that prayer on the top of page 67. And I didn't see him for a while. And then I ran into him in a meeting. And I said, so how's that resentment going with the guy at work? And he had this blank look on his face. And he went, oh, oh, yeah. He says, I don't have that anymore. I said, really? I said, you're saying the prayer and it went away. I said, what happened? He said, well, I was asking God to help me show them the same patience, pity, and tolerance I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And I was saying that. And then all of a sudden, I started having this fantasy. And the fantasy was, what if... What if that guy, his erratic behavior that really bugs me and his, his aggressiveness, what if, he, what if I found out he really had a brain tumor? What if I found out that he had this brain tumor that was pressing on his brain and making him act erratic and, and like uptight all the time? How would I feel about the guy then? And I, I, I said, man, I would feel sorry for him. I wouldn't be mad at a guy who can't help it. I wouldn't be pissed at a guy who's got a brain tumor and acting erratically. And then he said, to, he said, then I thought back of my own life of how that sometimes my emotional illness of alcoholism at times put the screws to me and how I could, I was just as helpless at some of the way I treated people as if I would have had a brain tumor. And he said, I started to understand that this guy was like me at times. That maybe he could no longer, he could no more help being the way he was than I could, I could at the times when I've hurt a lot of people and didn't mean to. And he said he started having compassion and understanding for this guy. And he said he, started, he stopped reacting to him and his craziness and started treating him like a sick guy. And he said the whole relationship changed between him and that guy. And he became the only, the only friend that guy had, and the guy didn't have any friends at work. He became his only friend, his only go-to guy. There was a guy years ago, probably, oh God, it's probably close to 15 years ago that I was sponsoring. And we got to, we got into his uh, fifth step and we got about a third of the way through it. And this is, the, from this guy, I learned to ask for the worst stuff first and get it out of the way because he buried this. It was his worst resentment. He buried it about a third to a half of the way through. And it was for his father. And he, he came from an alcoholic home. And his dad was a bad drunk, and his dad on many, many occasions would be drunk and just beat this little boy, I mean, till he ended up in the emergency room. I mean, just it was horrible. And then there were other times when, 
when his father would be hung over and remorseful and, and be swearing off and feel so guilty for what he did that he'd make all these promises. I'm going to get you a bicycle and I'm going to take you to Disneyland. And, and always the old al- the alcoholism would reassert itself and he'd go back to being the same way. And he never, never came through on any of these hundreds of promises. And then other times he'd be hung over and irritable and uptight. And sometimes that was even worse because then he would scream and yell and, and shut up. And you're making, go to your room, you're stupid, don't say anything. And this kid grew up with that and it owned him. And he had spent years in therapy, in gestalt therapy, beating pillows and putting his father, imagining his father in a chair and screaming and yelling at the chair and then going and getting in the chair and responding back and doing all the gestalt chair stuff. And and he tried everything. And all he ever got was little moments of kind of relief and then back to the same thing. It never really changed for him. And it affected his ability to have relationships with women. It affected his ability to maintain a job, to be a team player, to work for a boss, to be of service. The guy was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had had this inability to go and be a team player and be of service because he had this authority thing going on, and he just couldn't stop being defensive and all that stuff at work. And this owned him. So we're going through this, and he's talking about his father and column number one and column number two, what his father did and all the things his father did, and what was hurt, threatened, affected, or interfered with. Everything, his self-esteem, his pride, his, his ambitions, uh, his relationships, uh, everything was just destroyed. And Then we started talking about this was our course. And I started reading that the part out of the book, and I said, you know, you have to realize how, the, how your dad was like you, possibly sick. You have to see how you're like your father, and you could have done the same thing. And I couldn't even finish the thought. He started yelling at me. And he started yelling at me, what do you mean I'm not like my father? My father was an animal. My father was the most selfish. And he went, all this venom started pouring out. And I just back off because I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, this guy is, is not prepared to look at this from an entirely different angle. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I get that. Okay. And, and, I, and I don't know. And I'm afraid to push it because I think he's going to hit me. He's like got all this anger. And I've always been intimidated by extreme anger anyway. So that's my deal. So I backed off and I said, well, let's uh, go on with the next resentment. He starts in the next resentment and I don't even hear what he's saying because I got something going on in me. And what was going on in me was not of me, but I think it was through me. And I think the reason it was going on is before I hear a fifth step, I get the guy who's going to say it to ask God in. And I sit there quietly and I ask God to help me be useful. And I, as my friend Bob B says, I'm never the well, but sometimes I get to be the pipe. And what came up next is I'm something that I'm not bright enough to get. And I stopped him halfway through that resentment, and it just this intuitive thing was strong on me. And I said to him, I said, I'd like to go back to another resentment. He said, yeah, you want to go back to my father, huh? No, no, I do not want to go back to that. I want to go back to that one in the beginning, that woman with the kids that you were involved with for those years. He said, what of it? I said, you know, I was just wondering if any time in that relationship when you were drunk or on drugs or hung over, if you ever did anything to hurt those kids. And he put his head down, and when, he, when he, his head came up, he had tears running down his cheek. I'll never forget this voice in the most choked pained whisper like from the pit of hell he said I'm just like my goddamn father I said how did you feel about yourself when you hurt those kids he said I couldn't stay drunk enough I said do you think you're any different from your dad and he said He had this funny look on his face, and he said, you know, my dad lives in this little shabby trailer. He's all alone. He's got liver damage, and he's got pancreatitis, and he has been forced by a body that will not metabolize alcohol into a state of abstinence, and he is the most neurotic, negative, 
fear-filled, lonely person on the planet. He is in hell. Nobody has anything to do with him. I haven't seen him in a few years. We've all just written him off. None of his kids will talk to him. Nobody has anything to do with him, and he's dying. And I said, do you think you could be like that? And he got a faraway look, and he said, you know something? That could be a vision of my future. And he saw something in his father he had never seen. He could never see past himself in his own judgment. He finally saw himself in his father. Maybe not exactly the same. Maybe the circumstances were a little different. But he could see himself in his father. And he started the amends process. He, he, he did the last part. In the last part, it says, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done. In other words, I can't use their bad behavior to shore up what I've done. I have to look at, at my behavior in its own light as if, what if this person was perfect? Then what kind of a son was I? What if this boss was perfect? Then what kind of an employee was I? What if that gal was perfect? Then what kind of a partner was I? And I've spent a career, I've made a career of hiding my behavior, diminishing my behavior, keeping it in the shade of your bad behavior so I don't have to look at it. The book says, disregard the other person involved entirely. And I tell you, one of the things I used to say here in this part of the step, and I think it's a dangerous thing for me to say, even though it's common verbiage in AA, is, oh, in this part we're looking for our part. It doesn't say that in the book. It doesn't say I'm looking for my part. And the reason it doesn't say that, it says disregarding the other person involved entirely. If I'm looking for my part, there isn't, this is a whole. If I look for my part, the implication is they got a part too. I'm still hanging on to the fact that they have a part. And I would say that in meetings. I'd say, well, we're, this part, we're looking for my part. And then one day I'm with a guy who I sponsor who's going to make amends, and he's talking about it, and I get it. That because he's looking for his part, he went into the, he's going into the amends with an expectation that now I've humbled myself and cleaned up my side of the street. I've dealt with my part and come on, 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 and I'll help you. Remember, the book says in the amends part, it says never criticize such a person. Never, their faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. And I, I have to look at, I can't hide behind your wrongdoings. And if I can do that, then it's the first time in my life I've ever stood up and not hid behind the wrongdoings of others and stood up and taken the responsibility for what kind of a son I was, what kind of an employee was I, what kind of a partner was I, what kind of a brother was I. And I'll tell you something, in that light, it's not good. I was a lousy son, and I could find a few things my parents, my wonderful parents, but if you look at them the right way, you can find stuff. You could, if you looked at Mother Teresa with the perception of a judgmental alcoholic, you could find flaws in Mother Teresa. You could find flaws in anybody. And I would hide behind those flaws. And this guy, he, he looked at what kind of a son he was and he realized the amends and how, how he'd retaliated and how he'd helped turn all the other, his brothers and sisters against his father and all the people in the family by bad-wrapping him and, and, and talking, just getting everybody against him. And he still went to his father to make the amends. And, I re and he told me the story. He says, when I went to the trailer, and he, says, I, he said, there was a knot in the pit of my stomach of fear. He said, because I was afraid I'm facing the monster of my childhood. And what opened the door was a sick, dried up, dying little old man who was pathetic and alone and scared and shaking. And he said, my father of my childhood was gone. And he said, what I saw was I saw me. That's me. That's me without God's grace. That's me. And he said, I was able to love my father. I was loving really the me, the me that is in him. The me that could have been him. And he was able to sit there and make his amends to his father, which was a very prolonged thing. And what he really did is he took care of his father until his father died. And he loved him. And he thanked him for all the good stuff. Because even, even Attila the Hun had a good day occasionally. 
And he thanked him for all the good stuff. And he'll tell you to this day that next to getting his sobriety, the greatest gift Alcoholics Anonymous ever gave him is he got his daddy back. And that is a tremendous change in consciousness. And it all starts from a willingness to be wrong. Was I wrong about these people? Can I stand to be wrong? Do I, do I know that I don't know? Can I look at these from an entirely different angle? And if we can do that, tremendous things happen. I'll tell you a quick little story and then we'll break for lunch. Uh, I use this example. I haven't used this example in a few years. Somebody reminded me recently that I should still use it. And I haven't used it because, I mean, when a resentment's gone, it's so gone I don't even remember it anymore. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like it's out of, it's gone. And I'm around this person on a reg every day now. When I was uh, when I was a few years sober, I, I got I got married, uh, and I was it was you know make decisions based on self. I wouldn't have you could have put me on a lie detector, and I would have thought this was God's will. This marriage, I really I mean I. I have an amazing capacity to delude myself. Really, you know what's going on? Is I'm wanting to feel, I, got, I still got a hole inside me and I want to fill. And I'm looking around and I got it, my job's doing good now. And this is going good. This good. What could it be? It, kind of, it, wait a minute. It, it, it feels like a woman-shaped hole. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I need to be married. Because I'd look around. I'd see people really happy and... I got that, got that, got that, got that. Uh, wife, wife, don't have a wife. Need to be, need a wife. My sponsor, my first sponsor told me I would have married anybody I was dating at that point in my life. It, it, it feels like a woman-shaped hole. Yeah, that's it. I need to be married. Because I'd look around, I'd see people really happy and... I got that, got that, got that, got that. Uh, wife, wife, don't have a wife. Need to be, need a wife. My sponsor, my first sponsor told me I would have married anybody I was dating at that point in my life. <laughs> so I entered into this marriage, and, and we were married for about four and a half years. Had a daughter who is, oh, I, could, I could go on an hour about her. She is the light of my life. I've never, I, I never, I never knew that I could love someone the way I love my daughter. I, I suspected in early sobriety that I had damaged myself to the point where I didn't have the capacity. And I love my daughter, and I know that I can love through her. And through the guys I sponsor, I love them, uh, even the really sick ones. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, married for, I'm married four and a half years. And there's some distance going on between me and my wife. But I am so involved in my business. I've got this opportunity to grow this business and, and to really, I mean, a, a once-in-a-lifetime financial opportunity. It was incredible. I'm also involved in a lot of committees in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sponsoring a lot of guys. My life is full. I mean full. When your life is full, you don't notice things that there may be that are vacant. I didn't realize that... But my wife, the gal I was married with, is not involved in any of that. I am the center of her universe, and her life is desolate. And she's married to a guy who's so busy, he's really gone a lot. And we started having some problems, and she came to me. And part, part of my self-centeredness, it's, it's an unconscious thing. I just I get so wrapped up in me that I don't pay attention. I'm not awake in my own life. Right? I'm asleep because I'm wrapped up in here. And I don't get it what goes on with people around me because I can't see past myself sometimes. And so that's happening. And my wife comes to me one day and she says, I want a divorce. Oh, there might be a problem here. Okay, I, I mean, you don't have to hit me with a too big of a two by four. I get there's a problem here. So I, I, I said, my God, what's wrong? She says, I just don't feel good and I feel you know, I'm alone all the time. And I... Well, let's, let's try some different things. I'll cut back my hours. I'll, I'll change some things around. Well, let's go to counseling. We started going to, to marriage counseling. And uh, went for several months to this marriage counseling. And, and through the whole thing, my sponsor has retired. He's on the road traveling around the country. And he's out of touch. So I have a guy, Craig, who I, who's my, one of my favorite sponsees. And him and I become very close. 
And I'm using Craig to talk about the problems in my life. He's like my best friend. And we go to counseling for about three, three and a half months. And one day she comes to me. She says, I, I don't want to go to counseling anymore. I want out of the marriage. And I don't get it. I, I mean, like, God, we're, I'm doing, we're doing everything here to try to save this. She said, 